0: I'm Brandon Bartnick, and this is the Future of Mobility Podcast. Safe, sustainable, and equitable mobility solutions. That's what this is all about. With the climate situation as it is right now, plus many other factors, it's never been more important for us to continue to improve the sustainability of the way that we're moving goods and people. At the same time, we need to improve safety for drivers and pedestrians, and we need to get these solutions in the hands of the people who need them, need them most. So that's what I cover, primarily interviews I'm talking to the people who are developing and implementing covering these technology solutions. Also, my day job, this podcast is brought to you by FEV. FEV is your complete vehicle engineering partner for sustainable energy and mobility solutions. We're the engineering technology partner behind a lot of what you see on the road and elsewhere. Shoot me a note if you want to learn more. Check out FEV.com. Check us out on LinkedIn. Today is a special episode, a bonus episode. It's the return of the student spotlight series. So if you're familiar with the podcast, I talk to individuals who are hoping to make safe, sustainable mobility a reality. Doing that again today with a little twist. So today and the next few weeks, I'm going to be featuring a few students. So individuals who are pursuing degrees with aspirations to make an impact and help make safe, sustainable mobility solutions a reality. Today, I'm talking with Francis Dunn. Francis is a second-year doctoral student in material sciences at the Hydrogen Properties for Energy Research Hyper Laboratory at Washington State University. He's interested in developing new storage methods for liquid hydrogen and oxygen made of polymeric materials for both the aerospace industry as well as clean energy applications. So most of the discussion here, we're talking about hydrogen. So if you've followed the podcast, uh, hydrogen's a hot topic. It's potentially a key part in decarbonizing the mobility sector particularly the difficult to decarbonize segments and applications, which includes aerospace, so aviation as well as space, and then a, a few others. Um, so if you're familiar with hydrogen, not the easiest thing to, uh, to, to store. So gaseous hydrogen has its downsides. Liquid hydrogen, you got to keep super cold, and there's a lot that comes with that. So interesting discussion with Francis about what he's focusing on, the work that he's doing trying to overcome some of these challenges, and also how it's going to be applicable in the future also was able to talk with Francis a bit about how he's thinking about his career, how he's thinking about being productive and keeping the eyes on the prize and, and all, all these fun things. So really fun discussion. Please enjoy this student spotlight episode with Francis Dunn. All right. Today for this special uh, student spotlight episode, I'm joined by Francis, or Francis Dunn. Francis, thanks for coming on.
1: Yeah. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Yeah. I'm, this is cool your cool work that you're doing so we're really looking forward to the uh, the conversation here could you could you share a bit about kind of who who you are and and what you're doing
1: yeah so i grew up in california i came to washington state for my undergrads in material science engineering uh, i did a lot of research as an undergrad uh, especially in sort of polymer science and chemistry um and then now i'm a phd student still at washington state university i got a position at washington state's uh, hydrogen properties for energy research lab otherwise known as the Lab. Um, and so now I do, I develop sort of new uh, hydrogen, liquid hydrogen storage technologies using um, polymers, polymer materials. So, yeah.
0: What drew you to poly- polymers and mat- material science? I mean, uh, it's, it's especially in this application, I think it ends up being a pretty exciting field. But also when, when, when we say the word polymers, I guess uh, <laughs> not the most exciting thing kind of surface level. So what, what got you interested yeah. in this field?
1: Yeah. So I, I took, I just kind of stumbled into it. It felt like I took a intro class as an undergrad and really liked um, sort of all the topics that were presented. And then once I was like a junior, I think I took my first polymers focused course. Um, and I also got into the lab who, uh, with the professor who taught that class. Um, and I just really, I like manufacturing and synthesis work a lot. Um, so it kind of made sense. And then I also kind of liked the, Broadness of polymers—they're used obviously everywhere. You can go a lot of different directions with your career that way. Um, so I just thought it was a enticing field.
0: What then led you to to the hyperlab and kind of that the hydrogen focus?
1: Yeah. Uh, so I a big, I guess, passion or a big reason why I wanted to be an engineer was climate change related issues. Um, so that's also I got excited about polymers as an undergrad. I was doing a lot of like biodegradable work with proteins which are you know kind of a polymer um and then so i was looking for any way to get into your stay in the sort of clean energy space um and i interviewed with dr leachman i didn't know much sorry that's uh, the head of the founder of the hyperlab mm-hmm. and at the time i didn't know too much about hydrogen um but it sounded really exciting and they had a cool project for me to work on so it kind of just was a natural fit
0: hey, can you share i know the there's, you can't share necessarily everything about all, all that you're doing, but can you share anything about what that cool project was?
1: Yeah. So um, so the I work with another PhD student. He's a mechanical engineering uh, PhD student, but so he kind of kicked off this project, which is um, using origami structures uh, made out of plastic for liquid hydrogen storage. Uh, so sort of the big breakthrough was that um, we could make polymer structures that can deform, you know, 90, 95% at cryogenic temperatures uh, without them fracturing. Um, if you know much material science, that's kind of counterintuitive even for me when I joined the lab, I, it didn't make any sense to me. So um, I've kind of been working on figuring out why um, we can make structures like this that, um, and why. So that my colleague does a lot of the modeling for the mechanics of the structure itself, whereas I kind of tackle the material side of things, if that makes sense.
0: Thank you when you say origami structures, what what exactly do you mean?
1: Yeah. So we make the main structure we focus on is called a Crestling bellows. Um, So it's, uh, I mean, it's kind of hard to describe without just looking at it. Um, But it's essentially a cylinder that has a lot of creases along the circumference that so when you uh, compress it, it kind of you can, you know, kind of predict where the stress concentrations and stuff will be compared to like random crumpling, where you'll certainly have high stress concentrations that will lead to fracture.
0: And what's uh, and it really like we were talking about, it, definitely, uh, definitely going to get outside my my realm of uh, <laughs> <laughs> of engineering expertise. But can you take on, on the material side? What, what's interesting here? What what have you uh, what have you found? What's kind of interesting in the application? Um,
1: that you yeah, take- so um, it's been kind of a, a weird journey, honestly, to figure out what part of or what materials issues really matter here. Um, uh, But so really on the material side of things, the main thing that you care about is the ratio between the polymers Young's modulus to its ultimate tensile strength. Um, Those two material properties are a big part of what determines uh, the maximum bend radius of the material itself. Um, And so you want something with a low Young's modulus or elastic modulus and a high tensile strength. Um, So it it stretches
0: easily, but doesn't get broken easily.
1: Right. Um, And so the problem is that cryogenic temperatures, the Young's modulus of plastics goes up substantially. Um, So you're kind of battling that. Um, But so it took us a while to even kind of figure out what the sort of governing equation was for that bending radius. Um, And so now that we've gotten there, now I, I currently have some, Um, like fellowship applications and stuff out to start doing uh, my own material synthesis work to make new polymers or polymer composites that are particularly geared towards maximizing that ratio for this work.
0: Interesting. Yeah. 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 Because you think of especially something like, like a polymer or a plastic material, I imagine getting super brittle when we were talking about the temperatures that. Yeah. And so
1: now it's, I mean, it's pretty exciting. We, we make bellows that are something like six inches in diameter and four inches uh, tall, um, and they can survive thousands of cycles at ninety to ninety-five percent compression without any issues. So it's pretty, pretty fun.
0: So where what what are the likely areas of real world application for um, this technology, this uh, development?
1: Yeah, so it's. Um, our primary funding right now—I can't go into all the specifics of what they want to do—but our primary funding is from Blue Origin. Um, so it's a it's a way to store liquid hydrogen. Um, in particular, there's some big advantages for using bladders as opposed to traditional fuel tanks for liquid hydrogen. Um, a big problem with cryogenic fluids is ullage um, volume, if you know that term. So it's the it's basically the gaseous volume that's left above the remaining fuel in a fuel tank. Um, and our structures kind of combat that in an in a interesting way or any bladder does. But um, in that, as you are expelling fuel, let's say, uh, or just using the fuel that's in the tank, you um, the internal volume of the bladder itself is reducing. So you kind of have less room for um, all that olage volume, which is like that's kind of a big reason uh, the, uh, for the Apollo disaster. Um, so it's kind of a big issue. So that's and maybe
0: it. this is, uh, maybe I'm thinking about this wrong, but so like the, the liquid, the uh, liquid, and then also the gas, like that's providing the force that's preventing the bladder from contracting. And as that gets expelled, it contracts and creates a smaller area. Is yeah. That- so, the
1: way, so the way it works, you kind of, um, you pressurize the external volume around the bellows to compress it, to expel the fuel that's inside mm-hmm. the, the bladder itself. Um, and so yeah, reducing, uh, especially in like microgravity bubble formation is a big issue because you can't, you know, you can't assume that all the fluid in the tank will be, you know, at the, you know, will pool at the bottom. So you have a lot of things like bubble formation. So if you can reduce, the chances and just the amount of volume for those issues to occur—it's a big advantage.
0: And so we're talking right now primarily about like space applications, right? Uh,
1: yes, it's also a problem for terrestrial applications too, though. That yeah, volume's still a big problem. I mean, air solidifies at like 58 Kelvin, and liquid hydrogen's at 20 Kelvin to liquefy. So. Uh, even that can still be a big, pretty big problem.
0: But so, like, like cryogenic hydrogen, it's certainly interesting for some of these uh, space applications. But could, can you speak yeah. to? I, I don't know if we're talking about uh, like fuel cell type applications, yeah. or uh, I, I assume. But uh, can you? What What other applications for mobility sector or uh, or otherwise would yeah. cryogenic hydrogen be a, a reliable or reasonable fuel source in the future?
1: Yeah. So I think. Probably the most obvious one is aviation. Um, Batteries have a really hard time at cold temperatures um, that planes undergo, and they're very heavy. Hydrogen has the highest specific energy of any fuel source. Uh, It's about three times out of even gasoline. Um, So it's really lightweight. And so these um, bladders are a good way to store a lot of hydrogen for something like a uh, fuel cell. Uh, obviously, liquid is much denser than having just bottles of gaseous hydrogen. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of what we're hoping to get into. Um, I'd like to get more and more into terrestrial applications as opposed to space applications, but um, yeah.
0: Uh, how about on the weight side? So I, I know, like the even if we're talking about gaseous hyd- hydrogen, like the the tanks and everything that come with um, compressing and keep it's not light for for these applications. I, I can't assume, or I, I have to imagine some of the stuff you're working on isn't necessarily light either, but can you, h- how does the weight com- weight compare when using hydrogen versus gaseous?
1: Yeah. So it's all well, the structures that we make. These origami structures are extremely light. They're made out of, um, like anywhere from five to 10 mil thick plastic films. So for example, that, that bladder, the six inch diameter by four inch tall bladder is, you know, you know, it's, you know, grams worth of material. So it's very, very lightweight. Um, that's kind of on the material side. That's our current limitation is how thick and sort of how robust we can make the structures. If we ex- exceed a certain thickness, then they crack uh, as they're deformed. Yeah. Um, so I, it's hard to predict where, how much they'll weigh at like an actual use right now, it's still pretty early. So it's hard to kind of see where that'll end up. But
0: but net, it it seems like a pretty significant weight advantage. Yeah, it is a
1: pretty significant weight advantage. Yeah.
0: Cool. Yeah. So it sounds like sounds like exciting stuff. So, what uh, as you're thinking kind of in the in the future, short to, to medium term, I don't know, two to five years or from from now or so, what uh, how, how you thinking about what you want to do in in your career? If you want to stay on the academic side, if you want to go in the industry, uh, how you want to navigate
1: those waters? Yeah, it's tricky. Honestly, I go back and forth about that one a lot. I know I want to stay in the hydrogen space. I really enjoy it. Um, but I do bet sort of flip-flop between academia and just working a pr- in the private sector quite a bit. Um, but whether it's academia or, or private sector, I plan on staying and trying to work, continue to develop hydrogen uh, economy. Hopefully, I am more much more passionate about terrestrial applications than space applications, for example.
0: Yeah. What do you think are the the big facts? So, so it sounds like climate change is, is important to you and doing something to yeah. combat that. What, what other key factors you think there are in kind of the decision making that'll help pave what that path ultimately ends up looking like
1: like to, towards clean energy you're
0: saying for, for you personally so you, oh, you're talking just for about my, like yeah, yeah. the trade-off of academia versus private sector i, I, I got to imagine there's a lot of places you could potentially go and i mean we're, we're talking about these polymers for this application i assume you're learning some things that could potentially be transferred to I don't know, the medical field or i, I i'm just yeah. guessing but there, there's probably other areas but how how do you see yourself at least evaluating and, and making the decision about how you're going to carve out a career path for yourself.
1: Yeah, I, it's kind of interesting. I mean, location is a big deal to me. I want to stay close to family. I love Washington State. I would love to stay in the area if I can. Um, so that's going to be a big factor for me. And then, um, other than that, yeah, I'm, I'm not, it kind of depends. For example, if I get a, something like a fellowship, that'll probably steer me in a certain direction versus um, another. And so, yeah even, even what the rest of my, I'm, I'm a second year PhD student. I probably have either two or three years left. And so, uh, honestly, even depending what, where my PhD takes me, will play a big role in where I end up afterwards.
0: Yep. Yeah. And I'm, i uh, I'm, I'm a believer that, uh, I don't know. I, I've never really had career plans <laughs> as I've been going. You know, I, I started with Boeing out of college. That's um, to focus on these aviation. Oh, and awesome. Yeah. Came, came to FEV without really knowing what we did five years ago. And then have kind of found a passion and carved uh, an area that, that really fits. Well yeah. For I'm, me I'm all, kind all of,
1: even if you had asked me, you know, two years ago, I, I would have never guessed I'd be working on in hydrogen. It was not even on my radar and now I couldn't be happier. So yeah, it seems like I'm, I'm on a journey.
0: Yep. Yeah. And I, I wonder, so uh, I'd be curious to get your opinion and, and how you've approached this. So personally, I've I've tried to take the approach of valuing kind of experience, skill generation and whatever seems. So like if, if I, I don't want to, when I started this podcast a year and a half ago, I figured, okay, this is something that i didn't know if i'd be doing it a year and a half plus ago um i figured you know worst case it's going to help me be a better speaker because i didn't think uh, i was a great uh great speaker yeah. it's going to introduce me to a lot of people who uh who are working on interesting things and could potentially open doors and so it seemed like kind of a no-brainer even if i did five episodes and called called it quits that you know it was would check a few boxes right do you have kind of a I don't know, an overall framework that you're using to try to, try to think about that, or is it uh, maybe, maybe less intentional?
1: Uh, No, I mean, like a big part of what drew drew me to the hyperlab, for example, um, it's, we, we set it up in a very, I would say a very unique way compared to the other labs I've been in. So each graduate student kind of runs a team of undergrads. Um, So that's, I knew that would be very valuable for my professional life too, just learning how to sort of be in a more leadership position. It's hard to find that in, uh, as a PhD student, for example. Um, and so I I really try to think about uh, what I'm offered and how that'll relate to my future, of course. Um, I think most engineers often end up as in management positions or stuff like that as their career goes on. And so I'm trying to be as valuable as possible to wherever I end up, essentially.
0: Yeah, cool. And maybe the the last life- question life- comment and question I had so so one thing that was interesting right in that uh the, if, you, if you want to call it uh expressing interest in the students thought like experience or uh, entry you know I had kind of a, a form and then I had a social me- media um component that I had uh yeah you requested and I, I think you're, you're the uh, the only one to reach out and say hey I, I failed out this form but I'm off of social media yeah <laughs> we're, we're, can, can you speak to uh and that definitely seemed like a conscious decision right so, so can, you, can you speak yes. to uh what went into that or how you made that choice and then how how that's going for you, if it's still going on?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm a relatively private person and I also just don't really like um, a lot of the issues that I think social media is sort of causing in a lot of our lives. Um, I also think it's a distraction from what I really care about, which for me has kind of, at least in my adult life, certainly always been climate change um, and helping out wherever I can with that issue. And so I kind of, it's an easy choice for me to just, if I never start, I, that addiction will kind of never kick in. So I try my best to just do what I I can and uh, hopefully contribute the best of my abilities. So it seems like just a distraction.
0: Are you familiar at all with the, uh, the professor, author, speaker, uh, Cal Newport, uh, that name? Um, about?
1: I, I actually, I have heard the name. I don't know a lot, though.
0: Well, one of the things he, he advertises is kind of, uh, and I, I can't remember exactly. So I have his book, Deep Work um, in a World Without Email here on my desk. And one of the things that he advocates is, is being very conscious about the way that you use uh, social media and either not using it or using it in a way that serves you and not so that you, you serve it. So
1: Right. Yeah. And I, I totally accept that a lot of people, it's a very valuable tool and it adds a lot to their life. And so it's it's not, I'm not trying to preach this by any means but for me it just it's simpler if i avoid it yeah
0: yeah really like i mean i'll, I'll post something on the on this episode when it launches on on linkedin and, and twitter and uh it helps to, to get reach but yeah totally so so i think that's valuable but yeah me staying on linkedin for 10 minutes after that and scrolling through <laughs> the theaters, <laughs> yeah that's not doing right. anyone good yet
1: yeah
0: cool well for, for instance, i think really really, uh, really appreciate you you, you joining for this uh, student spotlight series it's been well a lot of fun learning it sounds like you're doing really really cool work so uh been been fun talking
1: uh yeah but best of luck to you awesome thank you so much for having me on it's a great opportunity yep thanks have you good one.
0: Bye. The Future Mobility podcast is brought to you by FEV. For more than 40 years, FEV has been a global leader in the development of mobility solutions for the transportation industry. With a team of experts passionate about innovation through the design, development, integration, and validation of turnkey vehicle and propulsion system technologies, FEV is your partner for the development of future mobility solutions. I'm your host, Brandon Bartnick. If you want to learn more or get in contact, share feedback or questions, the best place to find me is on
1: LinkedIn at Brandon Bartnick. Thanks for listening.